reading of God's Word from Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. We're starting in verse 25. And here's what uh, Paul says regarding the Jews and their place in the kingdom even at this time. Paul says, Lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. (laughs) Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given him a gift that, that he must, might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Well, it's probably one of the greatest basketball stories that you've never heard of. It happened in a small town called Stevenson, Alabama in 1992. The small town North Jackson Chiefs took on the big town Fort Payne Wildcats. And according to Sports Illustrated, it wasn't a playoff game, nor was it a conference game. And in fact, both teams weren't very good at all. What it really proved to be was an ugly game, as there were a total of 84 fouls called in this game. If you're familiar with basketball, that's a lot. And to really, the the adventure of this game all began with about two minutes left in the second half of the game. North Jackson's best player and point guard fouled out uh, for North Jackson. And what you don't know is that North Jackson only had nine players. It was such a small school. That put them down to eight players for the game. A few seconds later, another player from the Chiefs fouled out. That put them down to seven players for the game. Uh, Two minutes were left in the game. And the interesting thing was that the the North Jackson Chiefs were still up, and they were up by three points. But the next minute and a half proved to be utter pandemonium as Fort Payne slowly took over the game and built a two-point lead. Another North Jackson player fouled out in the process of all that so that they only had six players, and yet another fouled out, and now they were down to five players. With 25 seconds left, Payne was up, uh, Fort Payne was up by two and took it down the court. 
It seemed like it was all over but the shooting. Yet, Fort Payne missed another shot. And North Jackson rebounded the ball, and Travis Smith took it down court, uh, stopped and popped a three-pointer, uh, tried to pop a three-pointer, and he was fouled. Down by two, he shot uh, two, uh, got three uh, foul shots, and he made two of them to tie the game. The result was, with just seconds left, uh, time ran out, and they were tied and had to go into overtime. It didn't stop in overtime, the adventure and the unexpected twists of this game. No sooner uh, had they stopped than a minute and 41 seconds left in the overtime, another uh, North Jackson player fouled out. That left them with a new, a new challenge. They only had four players left to play in the game. And then two seconds later, another North Jackson player fouled out, and they were left with three on five uh, against uh, Fort Payne. What was even worse is they were down uh, 67 to 62. Then, with only three on five, the most furious and unexpected comeback in history happened on that amazing night in Stevenson, Alabama. Fort Payne started making mistakes, big time. They missed shots, they walked, uh, and uh, they did other fouls that led to um, three more points for uh, North Jackson. 32 seconds were left in the game with three on five, and Chad Cobb from North Jackson dribbled down the court pulled up and made a three-pointer to tie the game at 67. And then it happened. History took place. With just 17 seconds left, Chris Shelby, Selby of North Jackson fouled out. Now they were down to two players, two on five. We'll come back to the rest of the story at the end of the sermon. But the extraordinary thing, just hearing this story, is how there were just these twists and turns in the story, the unexpected events that occurred that changed the whole face of and the sense of the entire basketball game. And just like the North Jackson and Fort Payne High School basketball game, twists and turns come amidst the people of God very regularly, and especially for the people of Israel in the Bible. Uh, God's people, Israel, uh, in their whole story from Genesis on into the New Testament is one of amazing twists and turns that you're thinking, how could this happen and how did we get here in so many ways? I mean, remember how it started. God's people, Israel, came from a childless old man with his childless wife, and his name was Abraham. Later on, God's people delivered in a supernatural way from the superpower of the world, Egypt. God delivered his people from slavery in an exodus across the Red Sea. God then settled that people after wandering in the wilderness 40 years in a new land, a land that would be their nation as they settled in what was then Canaan. 
But as if the twists weren't enough there, God's people started worshiping other gods and regularly got into this cycle, as we learn in the judges. And, and even amidst the kings, they would fall off the wagon with their idolatry. And God eventually kicked them out of the land and spread them out all over the ancient world. But as if that, that wasn't enough of a twist, God also brought them back. And he brought them back, as we saw in Nehemiah throughout the summer, he brought them back to settle and to rebuild the kingdom that was there in Judah. The result of all this was that leading up to uh, Christ's time, the Jews had this wild history with God, full of all kind of unexpected turns of events. And we come out of that asking... What happened to the Jews? What happened to the Israelites? I mean, by the time Paul wrote uh, the Romans in, in the Christian church, their church was predominantly Gentile. And the Jews were a very small minority throughout really the whole church in those early years of the apostles. The logic of the Bible story would suggest that the Jews would, after all the adventures they'd been through with God and all the fallings and failings and even the glorious wins, that they would eventually follow the long-expected Messiah, Jesus Christ. But we find in the Gospel accounts that they didn't. In fact, they reject Jesus, and they're the ones crying out to the Roman authorities, crucify Him! To be sure, some Jews... A remnant, like the apostles believed, but clearly the Gentiles uh, dominated the church in terms of numbers. So you got to ask, what happened? What do we make of the unexpected ethnic makeup of the church uh, in light of the very Hebrew and Jewish origins of Christianity? Well, Paul's answer is clear in verse 25 of our text, and he, he says it really very quite plainly for us today. Look at what he says here. He says, lest you be wise in your own eyes, uh, in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Paul says, yes, indeed, this seems to be a mystery. That is, it is uh, something that didn't, doesn't make sense at first glance. It's, but in fact, it's a hidden truth to be revealed. Uh, the mystery is being revealed in Christ and in the Word, the word of God. And, and here's what that mystery is as it's being revealed. It has two parts. First, there's been a hardening, partial hardening of Israel. And second, that uh, it says in our text as well, that there's a fullness of Gentiles that is to come into the church, that is, the kingdom of God. So let's talk about the partial hardening that comes upon Israel. You know, only at this point... In, uh, as Paul has said back in the prior chapters, has, a, has a, a remnant or small proportion of Jews throughout history, even since then, come into the church and come to faith in Jesus Christ. While at the same time, the greater mass of Jews has seemed to reject Jesus. And, and the second point that he gets to is this. And that, that rather proves the hardening. The second point, though, is that Paul throws an end in sight when he says, when all the Gentiles are supposed to come in. That is, until the fullness of Gentiles profess faith in Christ. That some remnant of Gentiles, if you will, come into the church. 
We have no idea what that number is, what that uh, large number might be that God has intended for people who are Gentiles, which would be most of us in this room of a Gentile origin, not of Jewish origin. But the Jews clearly did not come to Christ in large numbers. And the interesting thing about this is Jesus predicted this very thing when he told a parable in Matthew 21, the parable of the tenants. And in that parable, he tells a a hard-hearted Jewish people, he's teaching this parable to them, uh, about a master who planted a vineyard and he leased it to tenants to farm the vineyard and to bring out some, some of the fruits so that the master, of course, would benefit. But the parable goes on to say that Jesus does that, that the tenants took servants who were sent to collect on behalf of the master, and they killed them. And ultimately, the master sends his son, and they kill him. And Jesus says that the kingdom will be taken away from you, that is the Jews, and given to a people producing fruit. This was a clear indictment of the hardening of the Jews found that Jews uh, who are resisting Christ and resisting God's plan. And so you have to ask then, okay, you're telling us all this history. What's the implication of this for us in the church? Well, verse 26 says it. The implication says that all of this happens so that all of Israel will be saved. What does he mean by Israel here? Well, Israel, at the very least, when you read it here in Romans, uh, means all the ethnic Jews who come to faith in Christ, the elect, who trust in Christ in all places and in all times. This would be consistent, by the way, with the whole context of Romans 9 through 11, which seems to be talking about the Jewish, the ethnic Jewish people. But we can also say, as we go further into the New Testament, that Israel is, at most... According to the Bible, all Jews and Gentiles who were children of Abraham by faith in Christ. Galatians 3 teaches that if you trust in Christ for your salvation, you're actually a child of Abraham. Ergo, you're an Israelite. Did you know that? You are a spiritual Israelite by virtue of faith in Christ. You are a spiritual descendant, not a physical descendant of Abraham. Furthermore, what does that have to do with us today? Well, as verse 26 and 27 tell us, the only way for anyone to get in with God is through a deliverer. A deliverer from heaven who takes away sins. This is true not just for Jews, but also for Gentiles. But Paul says this for a very important reason. Because all of our tendencies is to say, how do I get in with God? What do I do to get in with God? How can I please God and make Him like me or love me? The whole point of the gospel is you can't on your own. We cannot get in with God on our performance Which is what the Jews in particular were relying on in Paul's time. If we just perform the law enough, then God will like us. No, the only way we get in with God is by the deliverer who comes, and that is Christ. We get in by God's grace working in Christ. And the specific way that Jesus does that is through the forgiveness of sins at the cross. The cross is our spiritual exodus. 
where Christ delivers us from the wrath of God and the consequences, the eternal consequences of our sin. The cross is where our sins are taken away. Technical word is expiated for those who like theology. If you carry around guilt today, if you carry around shame, if you think, oh man, my life just feels so out of order, like I have blown it so many times, there's no way out. I've got great news for you. Whether you huh, have never trusted in Christ for your salvation, or whether you've even followed Jesus for a long time, and you just feel like I'm building up a mass of foolishness in my life, Christ can redeem you today can take away that sin now. The cross applies in all times and places for all kinds of men. Both the Jews, who were the kinds who were super religious types in general, and the Gentiles, who were the wild types. Jesus died for religious sinners as well as the wild licentious types. There's a second way this affects us today. As the beginning of verse 25 says, and it says this, Because we are Christians in God's church, and we are in by God's grace, nobody has grounds for conceit. Nobody can be arrogant. We do nothing to merit being in the church. You had to know that in the early church, when it came to Jews and Gentiles, they were really hostile to each other. And I'll tell you why. The Jews didn't like the licentious Gentiles and told them to tighten up, get their act together. Gentiles didn't like the stiff, uber-religious Jews, and they would say, you guys need to lighten up. And the result was a growing faction between these two very different uh, people groups from very different places spiritually. And here's where the problem showed up in their divisions and factions. Each one believed, we get it, and they don't. We get it, and they don't. Now, this plays into our postmodern time, our post-Christian world, where what's happening is our culture isn't coalescing into one big mass. It actually coalesces into little tribes. So that tribalism rules in our time. And in tribalism, we get people who have common beliefs, common ideas, common thoughts, common values together. And we look at those people over there and say, we get it and they don't. But here's how the church works. All of us in the church, to be a part of the kingdom of God, and by faith in Christ relying in the deliverer, you have to say, we don't get it. But he does. We don't get it naturally in our sin, but Christ does and he redeems us. Real Christianity is a place where Jesus calls us and really calls all kinds of people together in walks of life and in ethnicities because we admit we don't get it spiritually on our own. I'll give you an example of how he calls people who are very different in our age. He calls people who have different music tastes. He calls people who like classical music to be in community 
with people who like hip-hop. I can't think of two very, so different things in the world. He, like, he calls people who like country and rockabilly in community with people who like classic rock. And yes, though it's painful to admit for some of us, he calls people who like hymns and Christian folk music in community with people who like disco. Yes, it is true. The rumors are true. I grew up in the 70s. I listened to disco, and particularly the Bee Gees, and I like them. Will you be in community with me? Now, we all howl at each other's music tastes sometimes and other preferences we have in life. But I tell you, if you put ethnic backgrounds in the mix, you know, races and kind of ethnic backgrounds and deep-seated, long-term cultural rhythms in the mix, it gets pretty crazy when you get a bunch of people like that in a church. Well, this is the gospel that's coming out of this text. Paul is saying that the unexpected inclusion of the Jews and Gentiles together in God's church is, by grace, is clearly a God thing. This is a testimony to the extraordinary extent of God's grace. And nobody here, nobody here, not even and especially me, has it in us to say, I got one over on you. I get it, you don't. Christianity is really radical in that way. And that we actually say, we don't get it naturally, but Christ does and he brings us together by his grace. Paul knows this is a great truth in our text today, but he also knows there's an elephant in the room. When we talk about the Jews, there is this big problem that we often don't want to deal with. And it shows up in verses 28 and 29 of our text. It says this, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Paul anticipates somebody saying, well, from our point of view, God seems to have moved on from the Jews. It's almost like he's shaking the dust off his feet like they were due back in the ancient world against people who reject a righteous prophet. So the question would then be, do they have any hope as a people, the Jews? Here's the unexpected gospel. Paul says, indeed, they are enemies of God as a whole, there are certainly plenty of Jews who are believers who are friends of God. But they are also beloved because of the promises to the forefathers. Isn't that a weird answer? He's saying this weird thing like, yeah, they're enemies of God and they're loved. The implication is this. The Jews are enemies, but there's always going to be proportion of them Saved by God's grace that will one day come to Christ. Well, why is that? Because God promised that he would bless them as a people and that they too would come to Christ and follow in the way of Abraham, the one who looked for the coming Christ. Now, now we get to the big question. 
For those who are Bible scholars, those of you who maybe haven't been around uh, the church for a while, just hang with me on this for just a minute. Well, this is a big question people bring. It's the big pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill question. What will happen to the Jews? How will they come to Christ? Well, there are general answers to this. Some think that God has just left them behind. That has happened in terms of what some uh, uh, parts of Christianity have said. He's just left them behind and judged them. Clearly, our text says that's not the case. Some think uh, that as a people, they'll come to Christ as a remnant all along throughout history, uh, which will build up a, a people of God among the Jews in the church over time. But the most common belief in church history is, while, is that while a small proportion will come to Christ throughout the centuries of the church, there will be a shift one day when in history when a larger proportion will come to Christ. This matter of numbers coming to Christ isn't always clear, and neither is the timing. And we're not here to get into pre-mill, post-mill, ah-mill debates. Nonetheless, do not miss, do not miss the larger point of this text. The larger point is this. Enemies of God are made children of God. Enemies of God are made loved children by the grace of God in Christ. Romans 5 says all of us are sinners. We are natural enemies hostile to God himself. But God sends Christ as our mediator to bridge that gap of hostility and to make peace and to reconcile us to God. He initiates that peace with us. And he does it at, at, of all things, the cross. This is the unexpected gospel. That God so loves his enemies, he makes them his children. I mean, sit on that for a second. Would you do that? If you had an enemy, somebody who's giving you a really hard time at work, a neighbor who's just a bully... If you had somebody who's just really hostile to you in whatever ways, would you say, I love you so much, I want you to be a part of my family for the rest of my life? What? Well, that's the gospel. And the beauty of what is going on in God's work in Christ, he is changing lives by making the unexpected his own children. Two applications for this out of Romans 11. First, we are called to evangelize the Jews. That's right, the ethnic Jews that are still in the world throughout the diaspora around the world. Even in some of them are co-workers and neighbors. We are called to go to every tongue, tribe, and nation. But one of those tongue, tribes, and nations, one that God valued from the very first parts of the Bible, are the Jews. We are called to go to them. Just because they rejected Christ doesn't mean that we give up our reconciling work of evangelism with them. And think of this. Romans 1.16 says this. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. So even there, God has a vision for reaching out to his people. The second application is this. This text gives us assurance about how God is relentless in his pursuit and love for us, and how he is irrevocable in what he promises to you and to me. 
I love the word irrevocable here. Another translation is God doesn't repent of his commitment, his promises to you and to me. This whole section of Romans 9 through 11 is preceded by that famous set of verses in Romans 8 that says nothing can separate us from the love of God. But here's the problem. When we look at the Bible and the way God handles the Jews, it's easy to ask the question, does God stop loving them? And if God stops loving them, what about me? That's what Paul is getting to in Romans 9 through 11. The whole assurance question. What do we do when we wander? How does God posture himself towards us? Will God keep loving me? Will God keep loving you? And Paul's dominant answer is yes! Yes! You can be assured of your salvation because Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. God has irrevocably committed Himself to you And that includes, and to his people, including Jew and Gentile. What's this got to do with church and outreach? And how we even reach into the community? Well, look at verse 30 with me real quick. says this, Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Here is another amazing twist. You ready for this? For millennia, God had the Jews be the focus of his saving love as just a small people group. Then when Christ comes, uh, and the Jews in particular reject Christ, he expands his vision to the entire world I mean, going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth is what Jesus himself said about the mission. So he's going all around the world to all kinds of people groups, Gentiles, besides the Jews. But here's the wonderful thing. He does this boomerang thing. So that while the Jews reject God and the Gentiles predominantly are making up the church like us today, we are called to go back and reach the Jews. That's the wonder of what he's saying. He's saying our call is to care for and to reach out to our enemies. Here's the gospel yet again. Enemies become friends of God and then reach out to other enemies. So God's mercy extends to people who are hard. You know why that's good news for you and me and why it's assurance as well? It's because you and I become hard too with God sometimes. Not absolute so that we lose our salvation or because we don't. But sometimes you know how you get with God. You get distant. You get busy. You run from God. You don't want to deal with that thing, that sin in your life. And you keep thinking, this is haunting me. I can't get away from it. Well, the gospel here is God pursues hard people. God pursues sinners who fall off the wagon with idolatry. God pursues broken people like you and me. 
This is unexpected. It's a twist on the twist of mission. God makes enemies children, then calls those children to reach out to other enemies. It's surprising stuff, and it's not lost on Paul. That's why in verses 33 through 36, he just kind of breaks out in this spontaneous worship. Oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Think about how God came up with this whole thing. I wouldn't come up with it. Glory to God is what he's saying. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. I could never read God's mind. What an amazing God that he would think this up and execute a plan. That includes people who you wouldn't expect in his people. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift that he might be repaid? The answer is no one. No one. Meaning, God is so big, he did not require our permission or our counsel to pull off this plan. He came up with it on his own. And the wonder of that is that we have a wild and glorious God. A God who we cannot control, manage. A God we cannot necessarily predict what he will do. But as I've said to you guys in the past, that's good. You don't want a controllable God because if your God is controllable, well, he can't get you out of the messes you get in. He can't save you from your sin. But if he is so, so sovereign, even independent in his ways, yet loving and grace-filled, as this text has said, he can save you from anything. What is hard in your life right now? What seems impossible in relationships and community what seems so big is like, I can't do this. I can't handle this. That's where you need the big, massive God who we can't really predict how he'll save, but he'll save. That's where we call on him in unique ways. The gospel for you and for me is we need to stop trying to figure God out and rest in the fact he is untamable, he is unpredictable. And that's a good thing because the unpredictability and the untamability actually leads to a grander good and glory we could never conceive in our tiny little minds. God is interested in saving us because he gets it. He gets the big picture for you and for me. That's true not only for us today, but even for a people who harden themselves called the Jews, God's not done with them yet. Just like he's not done with you and me. Last we left our North Jackson and Fort Payne basketball story. Score was tied 67-67 with seven seconds left. North Jackson only had two players left against five. Fort Payne had the basketball and took it down court. And as a matter of fact... One of the players saw a scoring lane, of course, with only two players out there, took it down the lane, put the ball up, and the ball went in the basket. But wait. The whistle blew. The basket was waved off. It was charging. Charging against Fort Payne, against the two players. And so with two players, Chad Cobb and Robert Collier, uh, gathered with their coach and came up with the final plan for the last seconds.
Cobb grabbed the ball. Using his speed, he raced down the sideline with three or four Fort Payne players running after him. He ran all the way to the bucket, put up a shot. It missed. But coming out of nowhere was Robert Collier, who grabbed the rebound, pump faked against four guys, and scored the winning basket. North Jackson won the game 69-67 to with two on five. It was unexpected. It was amazing. It was a, a historic moment in basketball lore. But folks, that's us. We are the two on the court, this ragtag group who fouled out regularly. And yet God unexpectedly uses us in the church to change a world. God put us together. He loved us so much he put very different people together. Enemies who became children to reach out to other enemies. This is the God who has amazing grace beyond our wildest dreams. And he calls us to worship him today. So let's worship with prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, when we think of the great win of North Jackson and of Fort Payne, against Fort Payne, we, we know that we are two on five, Lord. We are too small as a church and as individual Christians, even as families, to carry out things that seem too big for us in our families, our vocations, our community, even our mission as a church. But Lord God, that's where you come in. As our great, untamable, even wild God. And so we look to you today as the one who has loved us with a fiery love so big that we can't even get our heads around it. That you search us out and you keep searching, even for your Jewish people. Grant us a passion to reach out to the hard religious types in our community, in the world, even among the Jews. Grant within us, Lord, a longing to see your amazing grace at work in each other's lives as former enemies become family members with you and each other. Only you could do this, Lord. Only you could do it in Christ, our great lover. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please stand with us.